0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This continues the series on sin and judgment. Verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another... Grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which, indeed, you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints On that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen. The letters to the Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians are mainly dealing with the afflictions and the circumstances of the Thessalonian church that they underwent in anticipation of the return of Christ. They are being afflicted, they're being persecuted, and the comfort that they are presented is the return of Christ, that they will be with Christ, they will see Christ. In this chapter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he draws attention to the fact that there is a righteous judgment that awaits when Christ returns. When he returns, God will inflict his righteous judgment against all our persecutors. They will receive their due penalty and we will be delivered. We'll be delivered from this present evil age, but we'll also be delivered from the wrath of God to come because God has not destined us to wrath. Chapter 5, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. He has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our relief from persecutions and afflictions means affliction on all our enemies. And when we keep that in mind, that we have this hope We will be delivered from the wrath to come, but they will experience the wrath of God. This is supposed to be, for the righteous, a source of comfort, that we are delivered, but our enemies are punished. That's why he's telling us this in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he will also speak of the return of Christ. And in chapter 3, an implication for those who misunderstand the return of Christ. But right now, in chapter 1, we have to ask the question, What is sin and judgment? What is sin here in chapter 1? Remember, we undertook this series because the New Testament is often said to be not focused on sin and not focused on judgment. It's all about love and grace, when actually we've been seeing that that's not the case. Even when we speak of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because in chapter 1, he's going to be explained, he's going to be described, even in chapter 2, described in such a way that he is the one who inflicts the wrath of God on all unbelievers. It's Jesus himself. The Jesus, everybody says, they know and believe, he is the one who will come with vengeance against the wicked who don't truly believe in him. They claim to believe, but they do not believe. All right, we... We have the author that is Paul along with his companions Silvanus and uh, Timothy. Silvanus is the Silas of the Book of Acts. Silvanus is the long form of the short name Silas. Now these were known to the Thessalonians and so the letter comes from them but written by Paul himself as he says in chapter 3 verse 17. 3:17 I Paul Write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. 2 Thessalonians 3.17 The Thessalonians are recipients of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but not their persecutors. They have the true grace of God, they have the true peace of God and peace with God, but not their persecutors. They don't know God the Father, and they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who persecute the church do not actually belong to God, according to verses 1 and 2, because he's going to make a distinction between the recipients of true grace and true peace and those who are not true recipients. And who are they? We continue reading verses 3 and following. 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. He is, they are, constantly thanking God, For the Thessalonians, why? What is it that they see in the Thessalonians called brethren here in verse three? Because they notice their faith is greatly enlarged. The love of each one toward one another is growing ever greater. Greater faith in God and greater love toward one another, which proves that they love God. Greater faith and greater love. These are the evidences that make the apostle commend them and thank God for them. And also, it's not an easy road for them. It's not as though everything is calm and serene in their life. They are increasing in faith and increasing in love toward one another. How so? He says, in the midst of all your persecutions... And afflictions. In the midst of persecutions and afflictions, they are growing stronger in faith. In the midst of persecutions and afflictions, they are loving each other more. They are not demoralized, they're not discouraged, they're not walking away, but they are, as he says in verse 4, perseverance and faith. They are maintaining perseverance, maintaining faith and endurance, which you endure. That is evident within them because of their strong faith and evident love for one another. And it's not a stagnant faith and it's not a stagnant love. Remember, it is greatly enlarged, verse 3, and grows ever greater, verse 3, love grows ever greater. In the midst of trouble... In the midst of trials, not when everything is calm and peaceful, everything is easy in life, but when it is difficult in life. And this difficulty, he focuses on the fact of persecution. Persecution. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts fourteen, twenty-two. It will indeed happen. When we live righteously, when we speak righteously, when we preach the true gospel, the persecutions will come and they will be constant. To the extent that we are faithfully preaching and living that gospel, those persecutions will come. Verse 5, verses 5 and following, this is the encouragement to persevere because when Christ comes, he will receive us and punish our adversaries. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. The plain indication of God's righteous judgment, he says, What's happening in our life is God's righteous judgment. He himself is making a judgment. He himself is making a distinction among the people of the earth, those who belong to him who are growing in faith and growing in love in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. On the other hand, we have those people who are inflicting that affliction on the righteous. And why so? He says that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Worthy of the kingdom of God. Why would he say it that way? Why, in in what sense are we going to be worthy? He doesn't mean by salvation by works, salvation by works righteousness. He doesn't mean it that way. He means that that grace that was first granted to us, to convert us, is the same grace that's working in us. It's bearing fruit. And so when we meet the Lord, we are not fruitless people. We are fruitful people. And as well, it's like gold and silver. Gold and silver, if it has not been placed in the furnace of fire to remove the impurities, if it has not been released, uh, placed there and then removed from there, then the impurities will remain in the gold and the silver. But our afflictions, our persecutions, are the furnace of fire God intends for us that we might be tested in that furnace of affliction and then come out purer, come out worthy, come out the way that the the maker wants the gold to be. To use the gold as he wants. He wants to use pure gold. He doesn't want to use impure, but pure. Peter spoke of this in 1 Peter chapter 1 in the sense of gold and silver. 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6, in this... You greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, that's his way of saying, be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the same as the apostle. To be considered worthy of the kingdom of God means to be bearing abundant fruit, manifesting that God is truly in you, has been working in you when you meet him face to face. That's why he can say, well done, good and faithful slave. How is he able to say, Matthew 25, 31, how is he able to say, well done, good and faithful slave? Slave, because the slave has been bearing fruit. He's been obeying. He's not the wicked, lazy slave, but the good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. And why are we suffering? We are not suffering because we're sinning. We're not being persecuted because we're sinning. We're not doing evil. We're not rabble-rousers. We're not troublemakers. We're not murderers. We're not insurrectionists. We're not rioters. We're not causing and sowing division among each other. He says here the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. We are suffering for the sake of righteousness. We are suffering on account of the name of Christ, as Christ himself said. Matthew five Matthew five ten to twelve. Matthew five ten to twelve. Blessed are you, are, are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, and men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are suffering for the sake of righteousness. Verse 10. We are suffering because of me or on account of me verse 11 not because we're doing evil we are not as peter says first peter chapter 4 first peter chapter 4 verses 14 and 14 to 16 first peter 4:14 4, if you are reviled for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evil doer, or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. That's the reason we suffer. Our accusers, our persecutors, will accuse us of evil, but. We must define evil, biblically speaking, not the way our accusers define evil. Our accusers will say we are sinning, but we're not sinning if we're faithful to Christ. They are sinning and persecuting us as a result. Then verse 6, first, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It is just. It is righteous. It is our vindication. It is a demonstration of the vengeance of God. When God repays with affliction those who afflict us, momentarily, temporarily in this world, we suffer affliction from those who hate us. But God has a day when he will afflict them. He will afflict them and he will inflict his righteous judgment on them. They will get what they deserve for treating us the way they did. And they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the one who will carry it out, personally carry it out, is the one they claim to know. They say they believe in Jesus. But it is Jesus who will get rid of them. He will destroy them, as it says here, verse 7, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. So God will repay, verse 6. In verse 7, he's also going to give relief. Repayment and relief, both are joined together when God delivers us. When will that happen? Verse 7 says when. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 say that our deliverance means their destruction. Our relief equates to their retribution right now if this is the case remember in 1 Thessalonians especially in chapter 4 4:13 4, to 18 we addressed the dispensational dispensational premillennial interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 4 and how that doesn't fit their interpretation well here also this letter of 2 Thessalonians both chapters 1 and 2 chapter 1 right here in verse 7 When we are relieved of suffering, persecutions, our enemies are punished. But they say that there is a time span, a gap when that occurs. And when we are relieved, it's at the rapture. But when Jesus relieves us at the rapture, our enemies are not punished immediately, not eternally. They may be punished on the earth, that is, There's all kinds of wars and famines and earthquakes happening and trouble during the tribulation. They're punished in that way, but they're not punished eternally, not immediately. But according to this verse, it sounds like they are punished immediately because when we are relieved, they are punished. Verses 6 and 7. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Okay, that's one. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. That's number two repayment and relief. The question is when? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. When he returns, when he descends from heaven to receive us, he's also coming in flaming fire, which means we have to equate this passage with chapter 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. The two go together. And four fifteen calls it the coming of the Lord. And even this passage calls it the coming of the Lord. It says in verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. So we're talking about the same event, the return of Christ. He comes in flaming fire with his mighty angels. When he's coming with mighty angels and flaming fire, he's not describing something that's calm and peaceful for everybody. He's describing something that will be awesome and terrifying to the wicked, to our persecutors. That's why the threat is mentioned here, mighty angels flaming fire. And if that's not clear, he says it in verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those who do not know God through Jesus Christ. Remember John seventeen three. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. They don't know God the Father because they don't know Christ. If they knew Christ in the correct way, they would know God the Father. These people, they don't know God the Father and they don't know Christ because they don't obey the gospel of Christ. They don't truly believe in it. Therefore, they will receive the retribution of Christ against them. On their head. Their blood is on their own head when Jesus returns. Have we heard about this Jesus? Has anybody heard about this Jesus? This is the true Jesus. Not the lovey-dovey Jesus. The Jesus of the teddy bear sort is not the true Jesus. He's not that way. Verse 9. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Who will pay the penalty of eternal destruction? Our persecutors, our afflictors. They will be paying the penalty. They will receive retribution eternally. Eternal destruction. Destruction in the Bible does not mean extinction. It does not mean annihilation. It does not mean ceasing to exist. Some within Christianity say destruction means that, but it doesn't mean that. It means eternal agony, eternal torment, eternal misery. That's what eternal destruction means. According to Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Matthew 25, 46. The, The eternal life is eternal, And the eternal punishment in Matthew 25, uh, 46 is eternal. Both are eternal, both in the Greek language and in the English language. That same sentence, the one and same sentence, speaks of the eternal nature of both groups, life or punishment. And in this case, he uses another word, a synonym, eternal destruction. They will not be in the presence of the Lord. They will not be enjoying His glory. They will not. They will, in fact, receive the opposite. But who will receive the glory? Verse 10. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, Christ will be glorified in His saints on that day, the day of his return, the day that he comes again. And to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. All of us will marvel. All of us will glory. All of us will be amazed when we see the Lord and we fall down and we worship him and we're with him forever. That will be ours to enjoy, but not the wicked. Verse 11, since this is the truth, since this is the fact, since this is the way the future will be, he prays accordingly. As he prayed at the beginning of the chapter, he prays accordingly. He says, to this end also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. This is the prayer. This is a prayer we should all pray always for one another that God would count us worthy of the calling, meaning God called us and therefore we ought to show forth that we were truly called of God, effectively called, definitely called by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. That's the internal secret call, not the external preaching of the word. It includes it, but here he's talking about worthy of your calling internally and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. That we might fulfill every desire for goodness, not be lacking not be sluggish, but showing all diligence at all times, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1558. Hebrew six, Hebrew six, nine to twelve. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Promises. So, persevere, abound in good deeds. And therefore, we show ourselves worthy of the kingdom of God. Then verse 12. There is an ultimate purpose. Verse 12. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the result? What is the ultimate purpose? What is the end of all this? For the glory of God. His glory manifested in us that we might praise him and glorify him. That he might be glorified in the redemption of, that he provides us that is the end that is ultimately everything everything to the glory of God Romans 12 or Romans 11 Romans 11:33 11, to 36 this is why God created the world and even created us we who are redeemed but also those in the world who are punished forever. This is why he created. Romans 11:33. O Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen all things exist for him and even what he does in us for his own glory it says in Ephesians 3:20 Ephesians 3:20 20 to 21 Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is for the glory of God. This is a doctrine that cannot be underestimated. Because most people think that God created the world in order to love everyone in the world equally. To love everyone in the world eternally. To love everyone in the world spiritually. To love everyone in the world unconditionally. Most people think God created the world to love every individual in those ways. That's not true. It's not true. There is not a single verse in the Bible that teaches any of those doctrines. In fact, God is glorified when he redeems us in Christ. He's also glorified when he punishes the wicked. We just read about that in chapter 1. Romans chapter 9 also says that. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, vessels of mercy. Also, vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. That's Romans 9. At the end of his discourse on the sovereignty of God in salvation, in chapter 11, we just read that God's glorified in everything. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Well, finally, in verse 12, the apostle returns to the way that this is possible. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what makes the distinction between the true grace of God, true salvation, true sanctification, true growth in faith, true growth in love toward one another, true fruit of the Holy Spirit, true Fulfillment of every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Power and grace. It is the powerful grace of God that makes it possible in us. This is why the Bible, uh, when it speaks this way, it's speaking this way to make a distinction between those who claim the grace of God, claim the love of God, claim to know God, Call upon the name of Jesus, but not in truth, and not in righteousness. 1 Peter 5.12 speaks of the true grace of God. The true grace of God. If there is a true grace of God, 1 Peter 5.12, this is that true grace. What does the true grace of God produce? It produces everything we've been saying. If that's the case, then those who do not have the true grace of God, they won't believe these things, and they won't live this way. They don't believe it, and they don't live accordingly. In fact, not only will they not live this way and believe this way, they will malign the true grace of God. They will disdain the true grace of God. It causes a bitter taste in their mouth. They absolutely hate it. They hate the true grace of God to save people by God's own election, by His own predestination, not according to the free will of man. So they hate the true way of salvation, but they also hate the true way of sanctification. They despise true sanctification, growth in faith, growth in love, growth in the fruit of the Spirit growth in obedience. They absolutely despise it. And how do they despise it? They slander it. They blaspheme it. They malign it by calling it legalism. They call it pharisaicalism. They say it's work salvation. No, no. It is not work salvation. It is not legalism. They believe in legalism because they don't have the true grace of God. And therefore, they think that they are swell and well and will never go to hell based on their beliefs and behavior. They think they've they've all got it figured out and they understand the Bible enough to be saved and to go to heaven. In fact, most of them are going to heaven or everybody's going to heaven in their theology. But they don't understand these truths. They don't have this true grace working in them and producing true faith and true obedience. We do. If this is to be the case, as the Thessalonians were encouraged to persevere, let us also persevere. Let's not grow weary in doing good. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood in your striving against sin. So let us persevere. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.